0: Good morning, everybody. It's always wonderful to uh, have the opportunity to come together and, and worship with everybody. And before we go any further, I'd actually just like to, to share just the last song that we just sang. Uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like I needed that this morning, the reminder that God is our rock and our redeemer and our strength against the enemy Uh, that he shields us from the attacks of the enemy and um, I don't want to over spiritualize things but at the same time I think we forget that we have a very real enemy who seeks to devour us and uh, to be able to sing and praise that the Lord is our rock uh, in our weakness. Uh, uh, Thank you worship team just for reminding us of that this morning. This morning, we are wrapping up a month-long focus on prayer, uh, what it means when we pray, uh, when we communicate with God, uh, and even how we approach God when we pray. And today, uh, the passage that we're looking at reminds us about how we don't need to be anxious or fearful in our prayer. And this is something that we're even trying to teach to our own children uh, our oldest, Isaac, is only seven, but we are trying to instill in our children the understanding that when they pray, that there is a relationship with this covenant God, that they do not have to approach Him uh, in, in fear that the, He's this cosmic judge that's going to zap them if they say the wrong thing, but we want our own children to know that they can come uh, in humility, of course, but they can approach the throne of God uh, with their prayers. And for those of you uh, who have ever tried to talk with children or teach them anything, uh, we've found that one of the best ways to get them to understand is through the use of story. That it breaks down these sometimes difficult biblical concepts into, into something that they can relate to. And last year, we actually read through the entire Uh, seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia with our children. We would read a chapter every night for story time, and it was a wonderful time because uh, with Aslan as the Christ figure and these biblical concepts that keep popping up throughout the books, it opens up. uh, Even now, we continue to have these conversations about what Scripture says, and do you remember when we read this and it means this, and, and, and so there are, are wonderful ways that story opens up communication for children to understand. But perhaps one of my favorite moments, and it's actually from my favorite book in the Chronicles, I brought it up here so I could show it off, but the horse and his boy. And every time I read this, I break down crying, and so I I hope I actually don't cry when I'm sharing this this morning. But it's the story of of Shasta, uh, a young servant boy who's actually been raised by someone who is not part of his family. He was found, and he took him in, uh, but he finds a talking horse named Bree, uh, and they decide to, uh, to escape and make their way to the northern lands trying to get back to Narnia. And in their journeys, they run across a young girl named Erebus, and uh, another talking horse named Huen, And they have all these adventures and they're chased by lions and uh, they get separated and have to come back together. And there are all these terrifying things that happen to them. And But it, they finally get to this point where they're able to warn uh, a foreign king about this uh, treacherous plot to overthrow him and and to basically conquer his land. And so... Shasta has finally made it to, to King Loon and warned him of this impending attack. And so the king and his men take off to, to, to ready the defenses for this upcoming battle. And Shasta is, is riding a, a, a normal horse along a cliff and there's this huge fog and they, he can't see anything around him but all of a sudden he can tell that there is something next to him. And he can just hear from the breathing That this is not a normal, this is a large creature. And just because he can't see, there's this sense of fear and terror of what is going on. And so he actually starts talking with the creature. And he finds out, uh, well, before I, let me just read for a, a short passage for you from a bit. And I know for some of you this might seem like a spoiler alert, but the book was written in 1954, so at this point you have no one to blame but yourself. Um, but Shasta uh, is, is sharing, with the, he's sharing his story with this creature about all the unfortunate things that have happened in his journeys. And he says, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. "'What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night.' And there was only one, but he was swift of foot. "'How do you know? I was the lion.' And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, "'I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. "'I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead.' I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile, so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. And just a few paragraphs later it reads, Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad too. And I think too often, you and I are like Shasta because we rely merely on what we see and what we perceive and what we think to be true. And the things that we're unaware of, lead to fear and insecurity and for some, even abandoning their faith. Not many people receive miraculous confrontations from God like Paul did. For one example. But this passage in Romans 8 is sort of like that confrontation. Romans 8 is Aslan on the cliffside trail where God is revealing through Paul how he's working behind the scenes in the ways that we do not even perceive that he continues to be faithful. In fact, we read Romans 8:26 through 30 and we see that believers can and should rest in God's plan for their lives the past few weeks, we've been looking at prayer, and we've been discussing your own approach to prayer, and how you pray, and how you uh, approach God. And that is good, but too much, let me be delicate in how I phrase this, I don't want to place too much emphasis on your approach to God. God. Because I don't want you or myself to believe that it's in our strength to, de- to defend our faith. Like we just sang that God is our rock and our fortress, that He is the one that protects His people. And this passage shows that God Himself engages in prayer on your behalf. On the behalf of His people, God is praying. And so, Christian, this morning I ask that you would find your rest. And this passage shows us two ways. I know I'm breaking my usual three point rule of, of breaking it down into a good Presbyterian three points. This morning there's only two. So please forgive me. But the first point in verses 26 through 27 you can find rest because of God's personal action. And secondly, in verses 28 through 30, you can find rest because of God's purposeful action. And before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, God. We thank you for your holiness and your goodness, and that you do not give up on your people. And as we're about to see from your word, God, we we pray that You would use this time to speak to our broken and wounded hearts. That if we confess honestly that we are often too tired from trying to defend ourselves. So God, let us find our rest in You and in Your Word. We ask that You would pour out Your Spirit in this place. That You would speak Your truth through a broken servant like myself, and use me to proclaim Your Gospel and Your glory and Your kingdom. And We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so the Christian faith is actually a faith unlike any other belief system, unlike any other philosophy, unlike any other thought paradigm that you can confront in this world. Because every other belief, every other faith, every other philosophy places the emphasis either on you or a human intermediary. Those other faiths and beliefs place their emphasis on the strength of human, human frailty, human weakness. They don't design it like that. with the emphasis on frailty and weakness, but to, to say that you have to do this yourself. If you're honest with yourself, sometimes it's terrifying to admit that we don't have the strength that we often show that we believe we do. Or to have to rely on another human such as ourselves that they are just as broken as we are. And in Christianity alone, we see God's personal action. This isn't Islam, where Muhammad is the intermediary between Allah and His people. This isn't the Hindu faith. And I actually had to Google this because I I wasn't clear on the number. But there are actually 30 Three million deities. And yet, out of that 33 million, not one of them are actively engaged in the daily lives of that faith. There's the popular, our popular philosophy today of secular humanism. That whatever you believe is good enough for you as long as it doesn't interfere with what I believe. But that doesn't engage in your daily life. That doesn't give you strength in sorrow or weakness. And yet, in verse 26, we see that God actually speaks into the weakness of His people. In verse 26, Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Other faiths say that you have to prove yourself or improve yourself. That it is up to you to make yourself better, to make things right. You have to do this. And yet, in the Christian faith, we believe that when you cannot, God steps in. In your inability to prove or improve yourself, God Himself steps in and does it on your behalf. Paul continues and says, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't know what to pray for. We, we bring our, our requests and our questions and our, our, our beggings even to God. We bring these things before Him. But in a, a sense, we are limited in our prayer life, because we are limited in our understanding. You can only see the things that are going on directly around you in your world. You and I do not have access to the bigger picture of not just what is going on in the world, but, but what is going on in eternity. You and I do not have access to the omnipotence and the omnipresence of God. We only see what we have around us. And even with the the access of of technology and social media, even all the things that we can reach out and learn about and, and attempt to understand, we are still limited in our understanding. And so those limits apply to our prayers as well. That even when we pray for good things, we still only understand our prayers and what we can interact with. And so God the Spirit steps in. Far too often, especially, uh, I love the Presbyterian denomination. I've been part of the PCA for a long time. But we have developed a reputation as being a very bookish denomination. That we, we place a lot of emphasis on the intellectual aspect of our faith while often neglecting the power of the Spirit and the mystery of God. And somehow we have to have the tension of both of those things. We overlook far too often the Spirit and His role in our faith and in prayer. In John 14, 15-17, Jesus tells His disciples, that when He is leaving, He is sending the Spirit to take His place. He says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I've often heard some believers pray. And, and, and it's, they're praying earnestly. But they're praying that it would be like Jesus would be with them in that very moment. And yet Jesus Himself says, When I'm gone, the Father is sending the Spirit who will be with all people at all times. As great as it would be to have Jesus at your side... The Father has spent this. He has sent the Spirit to be with you in your very soul and in your very being. This helper, equal to Christ, the third person of the Trinity, is interceding on your behalf before the throne of the Father. And I don't want to dwell too deeply on the the Trinity because the more you talk on the the Trinity, the more likely you're going to start dwelling into areas of heresy. But there's a, a profound mystery and beautiful tension of resting in the knowledge that God the Spirit is praying to God the Father on your behalf. That it's not about you having to prove yourself to God. That you do not have to improve yourself enough for God to hear your prayers or for Him to answer your prayers because God Himself is praying for you. And It says that the Spirit prays on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And if you're familiar with with this chapter of Romans, the the verses before this is talking about how all of creation itself is groaning. And it says, it is groaning with the pains of childbirth as creation itself is longing for redemption and restoration. That in this broken nature, that creation existence itself is longing for the broken things to be made right you feel that very ache in your own heart when you see wrong things happening, when you see just blatant racism or lying or, or uh, uh, when you see the, the people that you love and care about hurt and wounded physically or emotionally. When you see these broken things happen, your very soul aches because you know that it is not the way that we were designed. Scripture itself says that creation and you and I are groaning for redemption and restoration. And these are the same groanings that the Spirit is praying for you on your behalf. The Spirit of God is praying that you would be redeemed and restored. That the brokenness and sin in your heart will one day be made right when Christ returns again. In verse 27, Paul writes that he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God knows the very heart of His people. You can't put on a good enough show to trick God. Because He doesn't look at just the surface or the actions. God looks at the heart of His people. In the the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, when, when Samuel is tasked with picking a new king to replace King Saul, he looks... Jesse's children, the older children, the larger, stronger brothers, because he's deceived with his eyes and he sees the outward, and God says, "No, these are not the ones that I'm choosing, because I look at the heart. You can't put on a good enough outside to trick God because He sees the heart of all people. And the same God, the same God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit is God. The Spirit intercedes on your behalf according to the will of God. And the question is, how? if that truly took root and, and, and set in, if, if you and I truly believed that God is praying for you on your behalf, how would that change your prayer life? How would that change the way that you approach God? When you're struggling with your, your finances, when your relationships feel like you're falling apart, when you and your, your wife are, are fighting or your, your closest friends and there's just constant conflict, when life feels overwhelming and there's no relief, and you're, you're longing for hope and any sort of encouragement, how would it affect your prayer life and the way that you approach God if you and I truly believed that God Himself is praying for for you. Because I think it should affect the way that we approach God. He's not distant and detached. He's not a cosmic judge just waiting for you to do the wrong thing before He just nails you for good this time. He's personally involved and engaged in the lives of His people. And the Spirit is praying for you. Not because you earned it, but because you and I need Him to do it. He does it because we are unable to do it. And this is part of the beauty and the majesty of Christianity. This is one of the things that makes it so overwhelmingly different from any other belief system. Because God personally engages in creation and the lives of His people. This isn't vague. It's not just some, All right, well I'm just going to direct this here and here and just wind up the clock and let it go and see what happens. But this is an intentional engagement. And so we see not just God's personal action, but you also see God's purposeful action. In verse 28, Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And I I love this verse, but at the same time, there's a tension because I know that this is one of the most used, or misused, and twisted verses taken out of context. Because we like to believe that when it says that all things work together for good, we have a very limited understanding of what good means. It reminds me of Jeremiah 29.11 and how often that verse is horribly taken out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And so many times you hear that verse, and people are saying that God has a plan for me, and so all, all the difficulties in my life are gonna just fade away, and God's gonna, God's gonna will me to succeed. But there's the neglect that right after that's recorded in Jeremiah, the, that plan includes being taken captive in Babylon and being exiled from the land. Because that exile was meant to bring God's people to repentance. That God's people had to be humbled in order to restore a right relationship. And so when we read that all things work together for good, that sense of good is often misunderstood. It's not a sense of comfort or earthly treasures and pleasures. It's not a, a lack of conflict. But the good that God is working in you for, toward, is His own plan and His own purpose. That when all things work together for good, that God is using all these things in your life, the the difficulties and the heartaches, the successes and the failures, that all things work together for God's plan and His purpose in your life. And I know that sounds vague, and it's easy to say, well, what is that? Well, that's why the next few verses are right after it. It says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Before time itself existed, God foreknew you according to His plan. And His plan was not to give you your best life now. His plan was not to give you that dream job that you always wanted. His plan is to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. God's plan for you is to mold you into holiness and righteousness in the image of His Son. I'll never forget when Amy and I were getting married, we were going through premarital counseling Uh, at this time. uh, Bill McCutcheon was the assistant pastor at Westminster Presbyterian in Rock Hill, and he was guiding us uh, through our premarital. And the thing that has always stuck with me is when he walked us through Ephesians 5, on husbands and wives, he gave us the reminder that God gave Amy to me in order to mold me more into the image of Christ. And God gave me to Amy in order to mold her more into the image of Christ. That marriage is not just for in the blank. It's not just for tax purposes or for marital relations or to, to have children. Marriage is not for all of those things. Marriage is given to God's people and to all people. To mold us into the image of the Son. And to remind God's people of the beauty of the relationship between Him and His people. God's plan is not your earthly success. God's plan for you is Jesus. And as I just mentioned, Ephesians, the beginning of Ephesians, relates that plan as coming out of God's love itself. In Ephesians 1 3 through 6, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Before time itself existed, God's plan for you was to make you His. His son, His daughter, to mold you in holiness and righteousness. Paul goes on in verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified... He also glorified. I've already mentioned that the the predestined part is just God's choosing His people before time itself. But that God calls those whom He has predestined. That God has called you to Himself. Jesus Himself says in John 6 that no one can come to the Father unless the Father calls Him first. That your coming to the Father wasn't because... You just wanted goodness so bad that you were like, well, I'll give this God guy a try. But your coming to the Father is because He called you to Himself. He sparked that hope and that faith and that spirit in you to bring you back to Him. And those whom He called, He also justified. And I know I go into this every single week and I will bang this drum as long as I can on earth. But that your justification is one of the most beautiful moments in the life of your faith. That your sin debt was canceled on the cross. That your sin was nailed to that cross with Jesus. And that when He died and rose again, that his, your sin was given to Him and His righteousness was given to you. That His victory over sin and death was applied to you when He rose again. That's what it means to be justified. That it's not just as if you never sinned, but that Jesus takes your sin debt, pays it, and gives you His righteousness. That is your justification. And that for those that God has justified, He also glorified. And this is our hope for the future because this world is not our end goal. If this world is our end goal, if this world is our hope and our final stop, then there is no hope for the future. But we have hope because God is making His people new. He is redeeming and restoring the broken. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it describes that God is making you new from one degree of glory to another. That even though you have been given a status of righteousness at the time of your justification, you know from the sin in your own heart That it has not fully taken effect. And so God glorifying you is a process from one step to another. That today, hopefully, that you are more holy and made righteous than you were yesterday. Than you were a year ago. And that a year from now, that you will be pursuing holiness and righteousness more than you are today. Because God is restoring you from one degree of glory to another. And as we look forward to glory for our hope, Scripture tells us the end game. That one day Christ will come again, not as a humble servant, but as a victorious warrior and mighty king. And that is the day that creation is groaning for. That your soul and spirit of God are groaning for and long for the return of the King. The true return of the King. That the things that are broken now will be made right. That they will be redeemed. The, the things that are wrong will be made right. That there will be no more sickness or sorrow. No more tears. Because God's plan has been fulfilled. His plan for righteousness and holiness in the lives of His people that He Himself is praying on your behalf for. And so this morning, I want to challenge you in your own faith at this moment. But even as you leave and go back to your daily lives, as you go back to your homes and your families, go back to work or school, because it's easy to kind of punch your clock and say, all right, well, I did my church thing on Sunday morning. And it's easy to just put all of this on the back burner and to not dwell on what God's Word does for our lives. And so I want to challenge you. I want to ask you, will you continue in your own strength Saying to yourself, if I just do fill-in-the-blank, if I just do this enough, then maybe God will love me more. Maybe God will answer my prayers. Maybe God will do this. Will you continue in your own strength and the endless hoping that you can be good enough for God? Or will you admit your own weakness And rejoice in the personal action that God takes in in your life and in the lives of His people. And will you rest? Find your rest in God's purposeful action as the Spirit of God Himself prays for you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We come before You now admitting the weakness of our own hearts. That God, far too often, we depend on our own strength and our own abilities to do what is right. Trying to make broken things right and restore the broken things. And God, we cannot do it. God, we confess. We admit that we are weak and broken and sinful. So God, we bring these confessions to Your throne and, and God, we, we thank You that the Spirit Himself is praying for us on our behalf. God, remind us of this, that You have not abandoned Your people, but You are with Your people Remind us that You are with us and praying for, with, for us on our behalf. Not because we've done anything to earn it, but God, because You loved us first. Let us find our rest and our hope in Your plan and purpose for us, for Your people, and for the church. And help us to share that love and that hope with the broken world around us. We pray in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.